The following program is a presentation of the Wartime Podcast Network in association with PCN. I hope you enjoy the program, and remember, history is best when it's shared. After a great victory over Union forces in June 1863, Robert E. Lee marches his army to Pennsylvania. The advancing Confederates clash with General Meade's Union Army at Gettysburg, beginning the most famous battle of the Civil War. Explore our nation's past and the Gettysburg battlefield with the Gettysburg Collection. Become a member to stream hundreds of Gettysburg videos online, on the app, and on Roku. Learn more at GettysburgCollection.com. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to Battlefield Pennsylvania. Today we're filming on location at Bushy Run Battlefield in Westmoreland County. In the summer of 1763, British North America found itself in the middle of a full-scale Indian uprising. Among the many posts attacked in what was called Pontiac's Rebellion was Fort Pitt. To liberate the site, British officials sent Colonel Henry Bouquet and a contingent force to march through the wilderness of Pennsylvania where they were ambushed here at Bushy Run. After two days of fighting, the Scottish Highlanders defeated the waiting Ohio Indians, and 200 years later, questions still remain about the legacy of this battle. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Joining me today to discuss the history of Bushy Run is John Brankus, Vice President of the Bushy Run Battlefield Heritage Society, and Jack Giblin of the Army Heritage Center. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here. Thank you. Let's start with a little bit about your background. Oh, well, I've been a volunteer here at Bushy Run for probably almost 20 years. Uh, I've been also a member of the Bushy Run Heritage Society as far as the board of directors go. And I've also been uh, utilized as a speaker. Part of what we're trying to do is influence and impact a number of the people in this area of the importance of what this battlefield really is, not only from a historic point of view, but also from a, has, uh, a community resource. And that's probably what our primary job is and what I'm most interested in doing. Um, I'm a historian and a curator of uh, background, uh, both with the United States Army Heritage and Education Center. Uh, before that, here at Bushy Run Battlefield, I was the director of Bushy Run and Fort Pitt for 13 years, and then numerous other historic sites before that. Um, my, my background and my, my expertise, if there is such a thing, is, is 18th century military history. It's a beautiful day, it's a beautiful sight, but commemoration is nothing new here. Could you talk about the history of this place? Well, Bushy Run is one of the oldest commemorated battles in North America. Uh, the first commemoration, first notable, uh, either in the newspaper or anything, was in 1819. Uh, they, a small group of people got together to recognize the fact that uh, British troops and American troops particularly had fallen here. Um, it subsequently was recognized again in 1870 or 1863, uh, but it much smaller because of the uh, other things going on in the United States at that time. We were in the middle of a civil war. Uh, and then again in uh, 1873, and then uh, finally in, in 1913, uh, for the 150th commemoration, uh, a very large contingent of people from all over the country came in to hear one of the chief justices 
uh, of the United States speak, and he was brought in to speak about the battle itself and, and the recognizing the commemorative year that year. Uh, wonderful image up in our museum that illustrates that, uh, everything from very early automobiles to horse-drawn carriages from all over the country. Now, John, no one can deny the importance of this place, but it wasn't too long ago we almost lost it. Could you talk about that and how it was recovered? Yes, in 2009, uh, the state was gave us the option, or I shouldn't say the option, but told us, in essence, they were going to shut down the site, uh, the reason being financial. Uh, we then caused a number of things to happen, such as we got the local uh, politicians, uh, and also it's kind of an interesting thing, uh, we have a lot of dog walkers here. This is a very famous dog walking park. It's one of the reasons for it's such a good community resource. And when we had the meeting with the state officials and also with the people from the, our locals, uh, the local authorities, uh, it was interesting that the dogs were all standing in an airline, and as they walked up, they had to go through the dogs, and they were basically saying, please save Butchie Run. <laughs> so as a result, and through a lot of efforts of a number of people, we were able to turn it around, and basically what it ended up with, the state agreed to do the following. They would maintain the grounds, and we would be responsible for funding, also for any programs that we have and also for the tours and for the uh, gift shop. And we've been able to do that so far, which I would say pretty effectively. And matter of fact, our, our membership has increased substantially in the last few years. Things are looking up. Behind us, we have this beautiful statue. Uh, could we talk about who made this and what it represents? Um, sure, the, the statue represents the different combatants at the battle. Um, both Native uh, English and American. Uh, the three images are of a Native American warrior, uh, a Highlander, and then at the bottom of the statue, uh, an American rifleman or pack horseman. Uh, and the statue was designed by Robert Griffin in association with John Buxton, two very well-known Western Pennsylvania artists. And then the sculpture itself was actually executed by Wayne Hyde, who's an internationally known sculptor uh, from Bedford County. Let's talk a little bit about this region. It doesn't look today like it looked 250 years ago. Uh, 250 years ago, if we could go back in time right here, what would we have seen? Oh, one of the things for sure you would have seen is you would see tremendous amount of rather heavy foliage, um, particularly red oak and chestnut trees. Uh, this area would have been primarily a woods area, and that's what it was right around the time of the battle. It was after the battle that it changed considerably. Uh, then it became a farmland. A lot of the trees were cut down and utilized by both for building and for the furnaces. Uh, then it was also mined underneath it, which caused some more deterioration. And as a result, the battlefield does not look today what it was like 250 years ago. Jack, how would a visitor to, say, the 1750s would have described this whole region we're in of western Pennsylvania? Well, this was the frontier. Uh, car civilization as we know it at least as the English version of civilization as we know it, uh, would have ended at Carlisle. Uh, everything else west of Carlisle was technically still Indian land. Uh, it was actually closed uh, to settlement, uh, but despite that, you had numerous people heading out in this region trying to make a living, uh, scratching out squatters, scratching out farmland in the area. Uh, and of course, that is part of what caused the contention that caused the battle. 
you had you had a lot of people violating uh, what was known as the Proclamation Line of 1763, but it really comes out of the Treaties of Easton in 1758, uh, where promises were made to the native culture in this region that they would not settle in this region. If you were a person who lived in Philadelphia or Lancaster or Carlisle, uh, what would you have thought about this area? Because it didn't have many visitors from that, that part of the world. Oh, this would definitely have been considered the, the, way, the hinderland. This would be savage territory. Uh, the, definitely the wilderness. Uh, the folks, when you got beyond the Allegheny Mountains, it was a whole new world. And it was really populated by really the people who had the strong desire for independence. Uh, both good and bad. We had, in, evidently, what we had were the swindlers and you had the deserters and also the debtors and the people who were running from the law. At the same time, some of the other people were legitimate people who were trying to raise their families in the land. And, and you have to remember a lot of these people, because of their European background, land was very, very important to them. And so to have land, which you could have when you came out beyond the Allegheny, that could be a real plus. Now this is a story that in many ways begins with the French and Indian War. Uh, could we have a very quick summary of what brought that about, who was involved? Sure. Um, of course, uh, the French and Indian War spins off of a much larger conflict, an international conflict, uh, the Seven Years' War. Uh, but uh, in North America, uh, you, were, you had this sort of fight over land and over really trade more than anything else. Uh, the French claiming the, the Mississippi and Ohio River Valleys as part of their lands. Uh, the British wanting to in, in, infiltrate into the trade systems in the region with the Native American culture, wanting to get themselves out there onto the frontier. And then you had local Americans, uh, the Ohio Company, uh, Virginians who were, who were Tidewater Virginians who were interested in the expansion of land, uh, forming the Ohio Company uh, and trying to claim land in this region. So you had multiple facets competing for really a very small patch of ground. Uh, in fact, in, in the 18th century, this was almost no man's land. Uh, most Native Americans had moved well west of Pittsburgh, uh, and uh, there were very few Native groups living in the area between Carlisle and what we now call Pittsburgh. Uh, and it was sort of this vast, really wasteland almost, where it was claimed as hunting grounds, but also at the same time, you had uh, English-speaking people trying to move into the region. Now, if we look at the sculpture behind us, you see a list of seven Native American names. Um, that's an interesting story because they don't necessarily have much in the way of ancestral ties to the region. Is that right? Correct. Um, of course, at, at this time period, um, Native culture has changed drastically in, the, in 100 years. Um, you no longer had the very language-oriented tribes. You almost had cities where you had groups of Native Americans amalgamated together, such as Aliquippa or Kuskuski. Uh, you had a lot of different uh, smaller splinter groups or tribes that had formed, like the Wyandots, uh, really Iroquoian speaking, but not, not really part of the Iroquois Empire anymore. Uh, you had the Shawnee, the Western Seneca, which were sort of the rabble-rousers in the Iroquois Confederacy. Um, so you, you, you had a lot of different smaller groups living on the fringe, is about the best way to put it. How did those groups that lived here fit into the larger Native American world, the Iroquois Confederacy being supreme in a lot of ways? What was their relationship to the Iroquois? Oh, well, generally, the Iroquois, quite honestly, um, were selling off a lot of the land. And unfortunately, some of the people like the Delaware and the Shawnee, they were not very much in favor of that because it was their land that was being sold off. 
So they were pushing them beyond the area eastern Pennsylvania, further into the west, and eventually they ended up in the Ohio Valley. But the, as far as the Iroquois group as itself goes, they were somewhat independent of this situation here, though. This was totally, uh, the battle was more of a, a local battle than it was with the, as far as the Iroquois were concerned. Uh, is it fair to say that the people here were beholden to the Iroquois in some way during the Seven Years' War? Um, to some degree. You had Iroquois half-kings in the area. Uh, Titiskung, of course, probably being the best known. Uh, he was a representative, and I put that in big quotes, <laughs> uh, of the Iroquois, self-proclaimed uh, representative of the Iroquois. Uh, Delaware, uh, who lived in the region uh, and claimed to represent Iroquois interests in the region. Uh, the Iroquois did claim this region as part of their region. Of course, they claimed the Delaware as a women, as a subjugated group to the Iroquois. Uh, but uh, the problem is, is that you had a lot of other tribes like the Shawnee, the Ottawa. The, there, there were all kinds of different other tribes that were floating around the region basically just to trade uh, and sitting there not really beholding, as John said, to the Iroquois. And so that created some of the tension, particularly with the Western Seneca. Uh, the Western Seneca, who didn't get along well with much of the Confederacy to begin with, uh, began to follow some of the teachings of a prophet named Neolin, uh, as did Pontiac. And so there was some, some synergy that occurred there. And while you can't say that the conspiracy at Park, Parkman talks about was really worldwide or nationwide, uh, you can say that there was definitely a, a tone of language between the different groups that that they were following this prophet and the teachings that if they drive everybody back to the ocean, um, that things would go back to the way they were. So in the Seven Years' War, the Iroquois are pretty strong British allies. Mm -hmm. The Delaware, the Shawnee, uh, the Western Seneca, they took a different route. Where did they fall? They were actually, they favored more with the French because the French had a greater influence on them. The Iroquois being part of that English, you might say, influence, they stayed very much loyal to the English, whereas the Delaware and the Shawnee and some of the other tribes, the Miamis and the Wyandotte, they were, all of those started to become more inclined to trade with the French. And they became more adapted to the French way of living. And they actually started, the French were the ones that started them gradually getting away from, say, the bow and arrow to the rifle and from the clay pots to the metal pots. And, from a you know a bone or a, uh, a, a rock or a hatchet to an iron hatchet. So those were some of the things that they started to adapt to. But the other thing too is the French did not want the land. They wanted more or less to trade with the Indians as far as the beaver went and some of the other skins. That was the biggest thing they were interested in. And they also intermarried with the, with the tribes, which was another thing that gave more stability between the French and these other tribes. What kind of presence did the French have in, in Western Pennsylvania during the Seven Years' War? Well, the French, uh, you know, it, it started much many years before that with, with the French sending an emissary into the region to lay lead plates. Uh, and uh, as a result, that claimed according to the crown, that area of land for French government, and that being all along the Ohio River down into the Mississippi Valley. Um, but the presence, uh, as, as British traders began to move out, particularly in the early 1750s, uh, the French felt that they needed to establish a fort. And actually, the British got there first to a degree. The French established Le Beauf, which was up uh, near uh, Venango County, Franklin, PA. 
but uh, they, it was a small detachment and uh, they needed something more significant because, because the Virginians were sending uh, Trent and his company up to uh, build what was then known as Fort Mercer. Uh, later became, of course, the, roughly the location of Fort Pitt. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the biggest piece was when they, they came down and, and established Duquesne. Uh, and that was right on the forks, uh, literally at the point. And uh, that anchored, uh, even though it was in low ground, it anchored uh, the, the Ohio River Valley. And that was the critical turning point and what caused, to a great degree, the conflict in western Pennsylvania. Let's fast forward to 1758. Uh, major operation begins, uh, and also in a lot of ways is the beginning of Bushy Run's involvement in the time period. Can we talk about John Forbes and what he did? Oh, well, John Forbes, uh, his whole purpose was to go and create a, a road all the way from uh, actually out in the east to Fort Pitt. So uh, what he did was it, there was a conflict between the what we'd call the Virginia Company, which was George Washington, and uh, they wanted to go actually take the same road that Braddock took, which would be going through Maryland up, actually would be Route 40. Um, but as it ended up, uh, Forbes was the, the winner of the situation. But what he did was, as he started to move across the mountains, he would put way stations or relay stations so that he would have something to fall back on. He did not want to replace or re replicate what happened to Braddock when he got defeated. So in the event that they were attacked, they would then be able to fall back on that. And um, so his whole purpose was to build a road and relieve Fort uh, Duquesne, which he did. Uh, do you want to add anything to that? Uh, um of course, one of the key players in that and, and really comes out of that is Henry Bouquet. Uh, Forbes himself was, was quite ill uh, at the time of the expedition uh, and, and died not long after the expedition. Uh, but uh, Henry Bouquet, a, a Swiss mercenary, uh, trained at The Hague, um, a professional soldier, uh, was heading, uh, or lieutenant colonel in the Royal American Regiment. Uh, uh, and uh, the regiment was formed in North America specifically for uh, campaigning in North America, which was unique to the British Army at that time. Uh, and uh, that, that unit, at least the concept in, in any case, was to be mostly from the German and, and low Swiss population. Uh, i.e. Many, why many of the officers were German speakers. Um, of course, it didn't quite work out that way. We had a lot of raw Irish recruits, Scots-Irishmen, and a variety of other things. But Bouquet was a, an excellent soldier uh, and really understood uh, the complications of woods warfare. He had served in Austria-Hungary. He had battled in different in areas that, that were heavily wooded. And so he sort of understood how to move troops and build in this environment. And uh, he was really the architect to a great degree, he and Thomas Hutchins, uh, the, the forts and the string of forts that was developed uh, along Forbes Road, as John mentioned, uh, both way stations in between, but these key uh, stations like Fort Ligonier, Fort Bedford, uh, Raystown, that, that basically anchored the, the troops as they moved west. Way station, I think, is, is, a, is a very poignant term to talk about the origin of Bushy Run as a stopover. Uh, what did this region or this part of the road offer that made it an attractive place to stop? Well, it was, what it was, it, it became about the halfway point between Fort Pitt and Fort Ligonier. So what you would do is you, normally when they would travel by horseback, traveling about 20 to 26, or less than 20 miles a day would be more than sufficient for a person. So they needed these stations in order to exchange horses, to, take, to get relief. And they were usually housed in many of the cases, except, well, the one here at Fort Pitt was run by a guy by the name of Andrew Barley. Andrew Barley was also, he was very familiar with Bouquet. 
uh, in the sense that um, he was part of the uh, uh, Baker in the 60th Royal American. And so when he started the way station back in 1761, he then was able to expand upon that and through his influence with the military, this became kind of a general road because the, the military road, you might say from Fort Ligonier to Fort Pitt, it was a quicker way than going the Forbes Road. Forbes Road would have taken longer and require more time, whereas this was a shorter route. This would be one of the way stations and probably one of the last ones before you would arrive at Fort Pitt. And this was one of his objectives in, at the battle. So John Forbes has built a road that crosses the southern part of what is today Pennsylvania, November, Fort Duquesne Falls. But Jack, you mentioned a treaty mm -hmm. uh, at the beginning of the interview, the Treaty of Easton, that also right. happens around the same time. Talk about that. Uh, the Treaty of Easton was an attempt to sway the Delaware particularly, but some of the other lesser tribes to, in essence, go home from the war. Um, it was realized, particularly by the Pennsylvania government, but also William Johnson, the Indian agent to North America, that if they could break the Indian alliance in some way, they would, they would hamper the French, particularly with the efforts that were going on in the North, uh, under Jeffrey Amherst and some of the other commanders in the North, coming down the St. Lawrence, Wolf, of course, uh, ends it all in 61. But they, we, if they could break that sort of Southern component, uh, it would aid in what was going on to the north. And so Conrad Weiser and several other emissaries uh, invited uh, many of the Delaware leadership and, and some of the lesser tribes, the Western Seneca, the Wyandots, uh, Ketiskung, who is, not Ketiskung, but Ketiskung, was one of the representatives uh, at, at Easton. And uh, the uh, Weiser with the British government made several promises. Uh, one, the trade in alcohol would, would cease. Um, many of the, the Indians realized that the alcohol was part of the problem, uh, that many of the Indians were going to these forts and, and trading away valuable materials for almost nothing. Um, uh, that the gifts of treaty would continue. Um, the, as John mentioned earlier, uh, Native Americans at this point had become dependent on gifts of treaty um, because they were no longer manufacturing bows and flint. In fact, in some cases at this point, the art had been almost entirely lost in some cultures. They needed the iron tomahawks, they needed the copper pots, they needed all those things to survive. Uh, they either had to trade with them or better yet, they got them for free. <laughs> uh, so they were, they were quite happy to have the gifts of treaty. Uh, and they, probably the most important part of the Treaty of Easton is that they, this middle ground, this contentious land, would be secured for Native Americans. Everything west of the Alleghenies was, was to be Native, Native lands. Uh, and that was really, for North America, the first treaty uh, with Native Americans in a, in a large way. So when we think about that promise made at Easton, fast forward to 1763. If you're a British colonist here in America, you view this land as yours for the taking, but then the king makes a proclamation that hits the brakes. What is that? Well, I, I think the, it was almost, a, you would say, it comes back to that idea that land is very important and I have a right to it and this is my God-given right. And so even though this proclamation was in effect, the military, and particularly Bouquet, were, they were ineffective in being under control because they didn't have enough troops. And when you've got this surge of people coming over the mountains and taking over the land, that in turn, in infuriating the natives, once again, as Jack said, I mean, this was their territory, and all of a sudden, these the British or, or these people were coming in to take the land and claim it for themselves. It then, it, it was not only a violation of the treaty, but it also was a compounding effect of destroying their culture. What was the British thought process in instituting the proclamation line? Um, it, it was a physical demarcation 
uh, for for the colonists. Uh, actually, it was it was even published in the magazines and newspapers of the day. Uh, they wanted to get across to the public that this this line was unbroken. The problem the British had is they couldn't enforce it. Um, as with the British Army did traditionally after every major conflict, they drew down, uh, particularly in North America. And so they had a number of forts and a number of things to uphold the proclamation line, but no men to outfit those forts. And so as a result, squatting became almost commonplace. Uh, and uh, settlers came out here illegally squatting on land, trying to build a household. Uh, there were several attempts to stop it. Uh, Bouquet led one of those attempts. Uh, but uh, in, realistically, uh, they couldn't. It was just too widespread. As a result, the Indians became angry and took that into their own hands. And so as uh, Bouquet stated, uh, the frontier literally caught fire uh, shortly thereafter, between, particularly between 1762 and 1764. You mentioned alcohol, which in colonial America on the frontier is incredibly important. Uh, it was almost uh, a given for a lot of British traders that they could get uh, an enormous amount of good uh, from Indians for trade because they were utterly addicted to alcohol. Do you think that was policy on the frontier? It wasn't policy, um, but when you were issued a trade license, and trade licenses were issued by the government via the Army, uh, so when you were a trader leaving Fort Ligonier, you had to have your license, and that was signed by, at that point, Archibald Blaine. Um, it, you were buying some of your supplies at the company store there, and one of the things you were buying is casks of rum. And you had plenty of casks of rum that you took with you out there. Um, when James Kenney was at Fort Pitt, uh, he reports that uh, many of the Indians would come in and when they ran out of alcohol, they would come back asking for more. And when they didn't get it, they would steal everything in the store. <laughs> I mean, it, it became a, a, almost an addiction uh, for some natives, not all. Some cultures were very strict and away from it. But, uh, but those who were trading in and amongst the English population, yes. It's interesting that the French population, while they did have alcohol, brandy particularly, it was not part of the trade environment as much as it was in British culture. Uh, British culture, it was much more so. As you previously mentioned, not all native peoples uh, saw the attraction to alcohol. Some saw it as a big problem. We talked about Neolin. Uh, he believed in this. What was his philosophy? Well, he really wanted to bring, his whole philosophy was to bring them back to their original basis, you might say, where they came from. He said, you need to come back and, and realize what the spirit, really the great, great spirit wants us to do. So he was then telling them to get rid of their, their metal pots and get rid of their muskets and get rid of the, uh, the iron hatchets and instead go back and start to live in the blankets and start using the skins of the animals. And so his whole philosophy was to try to, it was almost like a discipline. He wanted to discipline them so that they would then come back and recognize where they came from and their value as opposed to be the dependence that they would have on the white man and particularly the British and the British in their goods and what they had. So that, that was one of the biggest things that he was trying to do. And Pontiac was a very strong advocate of what he had to preach. And he utilized that a lot when he was working the tribes to get them to rise against the British. Do we have evidence that Native peoples willingly participated in Neolin's revival of sorts? Yes, I mean, uh, there were followers is probably a better way to put it. Um, and they were pockets. It was not whole tribes in many cases, but you had these almost cult-like leaders, and, and Pontiac was one of those cult-like leaders who followed the preachings of Neolin to some degree. Um, 
historians differ on this quite a bit. Some believe he followed it to his advantage, uh, to get him cultural advantage. Others believe that he, he truly was a believer. W whatever the case, he did use it to his advantage, as did others uh, in, the, in the East, uh, to, to push the concepts of nativism and, and, and push the concept that the British could be driven back to the ocean. Um, and it was really hallowed ground that he was preaching on. Neelan talked specifically about this middle ground that we're sitting in. Um, and, and talk in great deal that this was, this was hallowed ground, this was religious ground. And that, that had meaning, uh, particularly to the Seneca and the Delaware. And so you saw almost two factions uh, erupt. You had Pontiac's faction in the West, um, hoping to bring the French back in, uh, being invigorated by Neelan's preaching. And then you had the Wyandots, the Shawnee, and the, the Delaware, and the Western Seneca here in the East, who were tired of the squatters, tired of the breaking of the treaty, and were starting to listen to the preachings of this prophet. And, and so somewhat simultaneously, this erupted. Um, conspiracy? Probably not, um, but who knows? Um, but, but definitely uh, a, a simultaneous eruption on the frontier of, of, of aggression. You mentioned a name, Pontiac. He is going to be a big player in this. The event will be known as Pontiac's Rebellion in, in, in ways. Uh, where did he come from? What's his background? Well, Pontiac was in Ottawa. Um, he, uh, his background was primarily, uh, I think, he came to Ottawa because of through his mother, or I guess it was from his maternal line. That's where all the, the Indians would, would trace their, their roots back to. And he, uh, he was also, it's been known that he was part of the battle of uh, when Braddock was defeated. He was at the site there. And so he had a strong sense of individuality and also a strong sense of the importance of the native culture. And he also believed that the British were totally you know, against that. And he believed they exploited them and they utilized them to an extent that it made them uh, dependent on them and became almost like slaves. And, and this was something he would, was not in favor of. Pontiac's a big name but he didn't necessarily make his home in this region. So could we talk about how much influence that a, a Great Lakes person could have over a place like the Ohio country far to its east? Pontiac came from around the Detroit region. Uh, he was a, a lesser chief. Uh, he was not a, a headman for a major town or a major, but he was a, a sort of on the fringe a little bit. Uh, and he had a following of young warriors, uh, and he was a little more aggressive than um, several of the other chiefs. Uh, the Ottawa particularly, had for, for decades, had kept good peace with the French. Uh, and, and really, Pontiac wanted that back. And uh, so he, he pushed quite aggressively in this time period to get it back. And, and really, just the, the teachings of Neelan and the situation that was going on in, in North America at that time lend itself very well for Pontiac to, to get involved. Um, he became known in this region because he, he attempted, and I put that also in big quotes, he attempted uh, at one point in April of, uh, I think it was 1762, to uh, amass a, a, a bit of a confederacy, a war confederacy. And he, he began, along with the Western Seneca, to, to pass what were known as bundles of sticks uh, as a sign to get together as groups and, and rebel against the British. It was unsuccessful. Uh, the Delaware actually sort of outed him a little bit and said, hey, do you know this is going on? And so it, it fell apart. Um, but it, it was enough that Pontiac began to gain some fame in the West. And that's what really, where the conflict really started was in the West. And, uh, and it, it, once it started there, uh, the Western Seneca and others just sort of began to snowball along.
uh, with the rest of it. And that's how it, I think it's been to a degree confused as a, a conspiracy. Now, in history, we have debates about this. Uh, do you personally believe that Pontiac had a great influence on people in and around the area of, of Bushy Run? No. In fact, I think he was almost unknown here. Um, uh, he was not at the battle, let's start with that, because <laughs> that's also uh, a great misnomer. Uh, and uh, he, he, I believe what you see here is more an unhappiness with the situation around Fort Pitt um, for the different Indian groups, particularly some of the Ohio, lower Ohio Indians like the Shawnee, who felt very displaced and the Western Seneca who felt caught between the Iroquois Confederacy, who are heavily allied with the British in the East and gaining all the benefits, as John mentioned, and then not gaining a lot of benefits here in this region and feeling they should. And so you had these two groups of people, along with the Delaware that were living in the region, uh, not getting the gifts of treaty anymore, all being cut off by General Jeffrey Amherst, who, and, there, and there's another piece we need to add, major change in the leadership of the British Army, uh, a leader who did not really have a high regard for Native Americans at all. Uh, um, he literally used the word, he wanted to extirpate the race at one point. Um, but also uh, looked at the gifts of treaty and things like that as being uh, not important and uh, actually cut them off. And so it, it caused the Indians to feel like they were being ignored. So the way they handled it is as they always had. They began to attack any settlements they found uh, and literally set the frontier ablaze. Um, Amherst believed it was nothing at the time. Uh, and we're talking 17, late 1762, early 1763. Uh, but uh, as time rolled on and they began to siege these forts, uh, something very irregular for Indians to, to siege anything, uh, and they literally laid siege to these forts, um, it, it began to be realized that they were slowly moving east and eventually were probably going to get to the edge of the frontier. And that's where the fear set in and everything began to change. Pontiac did have a, a sound military strategy in that he thought it out and it centered around forts. Uh, what was that strategy and what forts are we talking about? Well, he, he, his whole philosophy, well, there's a couple of things you have to realize. First of all, the natives did not have the firepower that the British would have had. So they had to use, quote, deception in order to capture forts. When he was doing the, during the siege at Fort Detroit, it was interesting to note that he, when he first planned to get inside the fort, that was his plan of attack. He knew he didn't have enough to, ca to capture them all, but if he got inside the fort, he could kill and capture their troops and take over the fort. Well, when that plan went awry, either through somebody let the, the British officers know about it, that was something that destroyed his whole plan of attack. But his whole region was the idea about surrounding and using a siege tactic as opposed to a frontal attack because life was very precious to them and they realized they did not have the manpower that the British had. They couldn't afford to waste them as a typical British war soldier would be in, in, in war would be affected by. So he was really a brilliant strategist. I mean, the very fact that he could uh, align tribes that didn't get along into a, a fact that they would work together to attack, that was something that was really unique and, and special about him. The other thing that's quite unique is that the, the Indians at this time used a tactic that Bouquet uh, called a, a kind of running fight. Um, because 
except around the forts itself, but particularly around the wooded areas, uh, they could make themselves look much bigger than they were. And of course, that plays out very importantly at the Battle of Bushy Run. Um, but uh, you know, in the case of the siege of both Fort Detroit and then later Fort Pitt, and even some of the smaller forts like Weatnam, Michelin Mackinac, etc., they they made themselves seem much larger by moving their lines constantly. They never set in one place. Um, every description gives a slightly different number of Indians, um, and and so it's very difficult to pin down how many natives were actually at the fight. Um, the only place where they do know for sure to a degree is Michelin Mackinac, where they played a lacrosse game to get inside the fence and were, were successful that time and, and were able to take the fort and killed and captured most of the, the garrison. Um, they, the, uh, that same tech, even though you had significantly different groups of people fighting in different regions, that same techniques or those types of techniques were used at LaBeouf, Venango, uh, by the, the Seneca and the Delaware and the Shawnee and Wyandots who were fighting in this region. Um, so it's, it's interesting to note that while the cultures are different, the tactics are very similar. Um, siege warfare for them, of course, to some degree they learned it from the French, but they didn't have artillery, as John said. They did uniquely re-employ the bow uh, of, and using fire arrows to do some type of siege artillery, but it was rudimentary. Um, more importantly, they were just able to close off communication and close off logistical support. Those were the two key objectives they had. They were attempting to starve those garrisons out if they had to. Some of the most challenging things about Indian warfare, uh, especially in the world we live in today, is some of the ties that seem very clear to uh, having psychological victories, using fear and terror to clear a region of settlers. Uh, do you think that's a fair statement? Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. As a matter of fact, it was very interesting that Colonel um, uh, Kay made the comment, he called them naked savages because they literally wore very little. They would just have a breech cloth, they would carry a musket, they would carry a powder horn, they would have a, a pack which would carry their food and their cartridges. They would carry a scalping knife. And they would also, the interesting thing is, they would paint themselves, normally black and red. Red signifying death, red signifying blood or war, and black signifying death. And that alone, it was interesting because when the troops saw these people, as Jack was saying, how they were moving through the woods. They thought there were so many of them, and they couldn't really relate to what they were, but they were also somewhat terrified by their appearance. And that was part of their psychological worth. They would literally come at you with their, this almost hideous look and then move out right after. They would keep moving around. They would, as Jack was saying, it was a running fight they would do, which constantly made the troops become confused and also unsure of how many they really had were they were battling against. They were also very strategic. Um, in the case of the attack both at Detroit and Fort Pitt, there were attempts made to lure the leadership out of the fort to, to treat. Uh, oh, we want to parley, we want to do a treaty, we want, to, we want to talk. That was not to the objective of actually getting a treaty signed. That was to the objective of luring the leadership out and, and attacking or killing or capturing them. Um, so they, they were using their own stratagem there to, to employ, to try and deal with in many cases, superior firepower, and that was their that was their viewpoint. Um, you know, the British were well supplied with gunpowder, with shot, with flints. Uh, the natives were not. Um, the natives were capturing that as they captured the forts. Trade had been cut off. They were getting a little bit from French Canada, but trade had been all but cut off by by Amherst. So they were resupplying themselves with every fort they captured. Is it fair to call that uh, terrorism by modern standards? 
Well, <laughs> all depends on how you would look at it, but it could be. From the British point of view, it would be considered terrorism. But from the natives, it would be just simply a method of, of becoming and an overcoming an enemy who was taking their land. That was a, a very important part. It's very similar to what we hear about terrorism now, about the control of the land. But they also, um, their philosophy was such that, that you, you started to realize that the, depending on how you looked at this situation, that the natives were not all wrong, you know, because of the, the very fact of how the British treated them was unbelievable. Uh, as Jack was mentioning before, Jeffrey Amherst was truly, he deplored, he just could not stand them. He called them savages. They should be treated as children. We should not be giving them gunpowder. You know, they will only use that against us. They have to, you know, utilize as little we give them. He continually forced them into a subjection, which his whole plan was. He wanted to exterminate them if it was possible. And a matter of fact, when they, in the battles that they were talking, he often said, take no prisoners. So that was also contrary to what the normally, what professional soldiers would not be saying. They would capture and release the individuals. But in this particular case, it was almost looking upon them as an extermination because he looked upon them as a hindrance to the what they needed to do here in this country. And also it was a fact that he, he was really trying to wrap up his time here in the country. He really wanted to get out of here. He disliked the country did not care for what was going on and so the quicker he could leave the better off it could be and that was part of one of his objectives at the yeah, same time i would tend to stay away from the term terrorism it's more tribal warfare um you know I, I in my work with the united states army we we have studied previous conflicts uh because of our conflicts now in, in afghanistan and and particularly in Afghanistan, you see a great deal of tribal warfare. There's still very old tactics and technologies that are used uh, to fight the, our armies. Uh, and it is very tribal in nature. It is not committing large bodies of troops, knowing full well you don't have those large bodies of troops. So in essence, you use more uh, strategic and, and more uh, objective-oriented tactics as opposed to large-scale warfare. That That's really tribal warfare. I, I wouldn't call it terrorism. So by the summer of 1763, Fort Pitt is fully under siege. It's cut off from the rest of the outside world. We mentioned Jeffrey Amherst and Henry Bouquet. Uh, how do those two come together to save Fort Pitt? What's the plan? Well, uh, what has happened because gradually communication got through to Jeffrey Amherst that there was that the fort was under siege. There was no communication and all the forts on the north up going along the Allegheny were captured. So all of a sudden, the only thing he could hear from was Fort Ligonier. So he then thought, well, and I have to take some measures. He didn't really believe it was as desperate as it was. So he was at the point where he had to select his troops and it was limited because the, the French and Indian War ended and there was a lot of individuals, you know, the fact is when the war is over, a lot of these soldiers want to go back, you know, and to civilian life or to be in a situation where they're not going to have to be involved anymore. So he then had to pull together an army. His army that he pulled together was what the 42nd, which was famous Black Watch, the 77th, which was Montgomery's Highlanders, and then the 60th Royal American, which was primarily American forces. He then ordered these troops all to Carlisle, and then he also contacted Bouquet with the, with the request and with the order to relieve Fort Pitt, whatever it took. Now, Whenever uh, Colonel Bouquet 
started to realize what he had, he did not know whether or not he had enough troops. But then, Andrew, then Jeffrey Amherst came back and said, this is all I can give you. You have to make this work. And so therefore, that limited number of troops, roughly around 400, is what Bouquet had to work with. He gets to um, right around Bedford uh, in June. You know, they depart in June from Carlisle, get to Bedford. Um, Bouquet states, uh, my Highlanders constantly are getting themselves lost in the woods. These are Highlanders that have just come back from the rum wars, the sugar wars in the West Indies. They're, they're inflicted with malaria. They're, they're, they've been fighting for literally years. They're sort of done. <laughs> um, and so most likely they're deserting. They're, they're going away. So he, he, he calls up uh, a small detachment of woodsmen. Uh, many people call them rangers. Uh, and uh, under Captain Lemuel Barrett uh, out of Fort Cumberland, Maryland, uh, 14 of them in total. And uh, he uses those men to assist in leading them through the woods all the way to Ligonier. Um, they are being followed uh, the whole way. Uh, these, these woodsmen, these rangers, don't look too different than the natives they're fighting. In fact, he ties yellow ribbons around their arms so he can distinguish them in the woods so they don't shoot each other. Um, and, uh, but they are able to safely get to Ligonier and then relieve Ligonier, which had been attacked uh, a couple of times uh, and, uh, and in itself was in a precarious position, not well manned. Um, and so he, he gets there in, in early July. By August, you see Bouquet's force uh, here at, at, at Byerly Station, Bushy Run, uh, and the situation suddenly changes. Could we talk about the Battle of Bushy Run? Well, uh, coming back, uh, actually, uh, Bouquet left Fort Ligonier on August the 4th. By that time, he also had not heard any communication. Now, he had wagons because his purpose was to relieve and bring supplies to the besieged people at Fort Pitt. So he left the wagons and he picked up 340 pack horses. He then placed on these pack horses uh, what would be about roughly 100, 110 pounds bags of flour. And it's an interesting thing. He got these from Cumberland, Maryland, and he bought them from farmers and the government. Now you can imagine, and he made this comment, that these horses were not in the best condition. As a matter of fact, they could carry one bag of flour and that was it. So once again, there's an example that the army isn't going to get the best. So he left on August the 4th with this small army. Now he also chose a different route. He chose what they call the South Fork of Forbes Road, which literally would be this road coming down through here. That was a route that he took because it was the quickest way to get to Fort Pitt. Now his plan was when he marched there, he was going to march to Bushy Run Way Station, which would be west of us, and take on water because now these individuals now marched 17 miles on August the 5th. They're carrying roughly between 63 and 64 pounds on their back. They're wearing wool. They're evidently drinking their water. The natives are happening to know they left the siege at Fort Pitt on August the 1st, and they traveled back up here, and they chose this site because this was right before they would get to the water at, at, at Byerly Springs, at Byerly Way Station. So on August the 5th at one o'clock, from these hillside, they attacked his first, his column, and that's when the battle actually started, right then. Jack, this is, by all accounts, an ambush. Could you talk about how it breaks down? Um, the uh, Bouquet's column is coming down the hill. Uh, the Indians have the high ground uh, behind us, and uh, uh, which is known traditionally here as the first day's action. Uh, and uh, as they hit this valley that we're literally sitting in, uh, they're fired upon from the heights. Um, the Indians are spread out in somewhat of a semicircle. 
um, and they uh, Bouquet deploys two companies of light infantry to push up the hill. He thinks it, because it's just small firing at this point, he thinks it's just a, a party of Indians out in front. Um, he really did not expect it to get hit here. He actually got expected to get hit in what is known as the Turtle Creek Defile. It's this large craggy area in the Turtle Creek area that, that Braddock was very close to when he was hit. Uh, that's where he thought he was going to be attacked, and that's why he was pushing so hard. He really wanted to go through there at night and get around the Indians to some degree because he knew traditionally the Indians didn't like to fight at night. Um, but he, he didn't make it. And they, uh, they fire upon the fight from the heights. Uh, the, the, gener the action becomes general. Uh, Bouquet constantly feeds troops up the hill. He constantly brings wounded back. Um, by the end of the day, August 5th, he's, he's got 50 to 60 wounded or dead, uh, and he's in the low ground, and the day is coming to an end, and he knows he's in trouble. Uh, so he, he does what all good commanders do. He said, I've got to find a piece of high ground. So literally, he backs his troops up. Um, now, you've got to realize, he's got, a, he's got pack horses that probably stretch for almost a mile, 400 pack horses. Um, he's got uh, a, a troop train that probably is stretching several hundred yards. Uh, and so they're all the way back up over this hill and down into the next little valley. Uh, so he, he amasses everybody to the top is what is known as Edge Hill, uh, the large hill to, to our right here. And uh, he, he encamps for the night. Um, the, uh, he sets up a, a circular defensive position. Uh, he does use some flower bags uh, to protect the wounded. Uh, he does not build a flower bag fort, <laughs> uh, but he does use some of the, the flower bags to protect the wounded. And he sets up a, a defensive perimeter. Uh, the Indians do the same thing. They, they get an, a little bit further down in the valley here, and they get in their semicircle, and they literally run back and forth in the evening, catcalling, yelling, not really firing upon them. They're saving their rounds. They want to be able to shoot at them at daylight but basically keeping the British Army in one position. Um, probably a key piece for Bouquet is that evening, that, that night, uh, many of the pack horses, uh, drivers, drovers desert, uh, leaving the pack horses almost unattended. Uh, he breaks off his Grenadier Company from the Royal Americans to protect his supplies because he knows if he loses that supply train, all is lost. He's got no way to feed his army at that point, and they're going to be decimated. Things are pretty desperate. Uh, do we know any of the Indian leaders on the opposite side of the battle? Well, there was uh, one called Mud Eater. Uh, he was a Seneca, and he was also here. And then it's been saying Gayasuda was also here. Whether he was or not is questionable, you know, but that that was some of the two famous ones. And then, Wolf, the Delaware leader. Yeah, and yeah, and Killbuck was Kill Buck. A, a Delaware. Uh, he was also here. They were some of the ones of the different tribes. And, and you know, and it's interesting to say, well, how many natives were in this battle? Well, according to um, Kilbuck, who talked later on to when it was after the battle, he said there were between 99 and 100 fighting braves. But that's one tribe. There were seven tribes here. So the, you figure that there was at least close to between three and 400 natives at this site. It was also interesting that when the natives, as Jack was mentioning, when you're doing this running battle, they were aware of that supply train. They were low on ammunition and gunpowder. Well, they figured this supply train might have, should have gunpowder coming back there. So they were firing on the horses, which was also causing confusion and chaos. So the horses running, and the and then the pack horse drivers who were coming, as Bouquet says, stupefied by fear, some of them just took off into the woods, you know, because they were terrified from what was happening. So it was a, a very stressful type of situation. And there was also the fact that even though they had the high ground, they had no water. So that made it even more desperate for them. 
can we talk about the second day of the battle? Because something pretty, pretty incredible happens. Uh, on the second day's action, uh, day breaks and uh, the Indians resume their attack. Uh, they continue to do this semicircle, this kind of running fight around the lines. Uh, Bouquet has got several companies of men in the front, lighter companies to the rear, uh, literally trying to protect the, the precarious position he's in. Um, Bouquet it's, it gets on again, just a pitch battle back and forth. Uh, he's taking more wounded, a uh, few more killed. He realizes he's got to create some kind of action or he's going to be overrun. Um, there's great debate whether, as to whether his action is purposeful or not. Um, but uh, what occurs is he, he, he feigns a retreat. He has two companies of light infantry that are to the front uh, withdraw back through the line. Uh, and he, he draws them back over the top of Edge Hill into the little valley down below. Uh, at the same time he withdraws those two regiment, or two companies, uh, he has the other companies move up in, and spread themselves out, almost to look like they are feigning a retreat. Uh, the British, when they retreated traditionally at that time period, they would move up and back. So they would literally start to spread into column and then move back and march away. And he, he replicates that movement in that part of the line. In the attempt to lure a body of Indians into that area of the line and then stand and fight them, which was the key. Uh, and they do. Uh, a large contingent of natives move into that area and stand and, and uh, engage in a pitched battle with that section of the line. Um, that allowed the two companies in the valley to swing around, meet up with the Grenadier Company that was protecting the horses, and they then unleash fire on the, the right flank of that Indian contingent. Um, that is, and, and they literally broke into two parts, one here and one this way. Uh, and uh, this flank fired upon the Indians, knowing full well they would run. This flank had moved over and they had basically run right in front of the guns. And so the bulk of Indian casualties occurred in this one spot. Um, Bouquet estimates as many as, I think, 20 to 70, depending on which letter and which component you read. Um, nobody knows for sure. The Indians carried off their dead. There were no bodies recovered that we're aware of. Um, but probably the key and, and, and really a, a key piece uh, in, in British development, because this is where light infantry in the British Army really gets developed, is in this time period in the 18th century. Um, he instructs the light infantry to pursue them. And so they do for nearly a mile, breaking the Indians up. Uh, and then they retreat back and they regroup. That was the key, really. Those two actions were the key to breaking the back of the battle. Um, there are a lot of historians who debate why. Um, my personal belief, uh, the Indians were running out of gunpowder and shot. <laughs> they had not taken a fort in months, uh, almost two months. Uh, they, were, they were not being resupplied. Their logistics were poor. Uh, they, were, they were grabbing food where they could. They were away from home. Uh, they did, and they were tired of fighting. Indians traditionally did not fight long campaigns. They fought small battles and then they went home. Um, so all of this started to weigh upon the natives that were fighting. And most of us believe that this was one last ditch effort to stem the British movement uh, and it failed. What should uh, the takeaway be from this battle? At the end of the day, it's people shooting in the, in the forests. Uh, but this has larger effects in the region and, and throughout history. So what is that effect? I would say that, um, well, it was one of the things it did was it literally broke the morale of the natives. I mean, they chose this site to make the attack, which was something they, they were masters of the woods. They were not that any longer. 
also it also gave confidence to the British because uh, you know they were coming back from the defeat of uh, Braddock. Now they were in a position where they were victorious, so that gave them also a sense of accomplishment. And it also, good or bad, um, opened up the floodgates, you know, to bring so people could start to come through the land. No longer was the Indian threat so so def desperate that the, you couldn't move beyond the Alleghenies. So that also started the population. And Fort Pitt was relieved, which was a key part of it. But uh, it was probably a combination of those things that, that made this battle so important. Jack, what's your takeaway? Uh, I, I think probably the biggest thing for native culture uh, is that with the campaign of 1764 that occurs after the Battle of Bushy Run, where Bouquet takes a very large army, over 1,500 men to the west, and basically says, you will return our captives and you will stay out of this land or we will decimate you. And, and so this is really the first big look at subjugating Native Americans in North America. <laughs> um, this is where the British basically state we no longer care about treaty and we're going to tell you what to do. And they do. And he, he, he has the captives returned. Uh, and in, uh, just a few years later in 1768 at Stanwix, uh, the Indians sign a treaty that basically gives back much of the land that the proclamation line gave uh, and, and puts them further west and, and really breaks up these tribes into even smaller groups. Um, it, it is really the first major step in what occurs to native culture in North America. On that note, I'd like to thank our guests for joining us today. As always, if you have questions about today's episode or recommendations for future episodes of Battlefield Pennsylvania, please visit our website at PCNTV.com. For everyone here at Battlefield Pennsylvania, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.